0: Our Lord, we thank you so much that you have placed us not just by ourselves in our salvation, but that you have placed us in a body and given us our brothers and sisters in Christ that we might be able to encourage one another and walk alongside one another with different gifting and being full of the Spirit. We thank you so much that we have the Holy Spirit in us individually, but also just with us corporately. And so when we gather together, we know, Lord, this is not just like we're meeting in a classroom at a college or at a high school or anywhere. We are gathered together as the body of Christ, the apple of your eye. And as we um, sit here and, and, and hear your word taught and as we use our gifts this day, we thank you, Lord, that you are so pleased. Um, to feed your people, and that we can encourage one another with the things that we're learning and the gifts you've given us. We pray, Lord, that you would use us, Lord, even as we share um, with one another, as we go about this day and interface with other brothers and sisters in Christ. um, Lord, may um, you use us to reach out and touch one another uh, with um, the gospel, and as we impart words of wisdom and knowledge and and love. Uh, just thank you so much that we could be together on the Lord's day. Guide us as we look at your word in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Um, we are going to start off with a question of how did the love of Christ affect Paul? This is review of last week. And I just want to let you guys know right out the gate that while I'm really super excited about Acts 10, we're going to be doing some stuff on the front end of the message that I'm not so sure we're going to totally get to Acts 10. We'll see how this develops. Um, but as I've been studying and praying this week, there's stuff that came out of the review material that I would, um, believe I'd really like to share with you all. And so we'll kind of see how that goes. We'll we'll kind of play it by ear. If we get through Acts 10, that's great. If not, we might be moving that back. Dan, your schedule will stay exactly the same, um, so you don't need to worry. Um, But my schedule might get bumped back just a little bit. So with that, let's start with this question. How did the love of Christ affect Paul um, from what you guys remember last week? And just for anybody that might be With us fresh this morning, we talked about the conversion of Paul last week. I've learned from my care group leadership material that I need to allow for silence and let people think process. Yeah. that's right so Judy that's I like the way she said that Judy says how did it not affect Paul it just revolutionized everything that he did and thought right just man remember last week so he he gets knocked down and based on the way we were developing that thought He's a Jew of the Jews. He has a very good understanding of the Old Testament. So when he gets knocked down by this bright light, he knows this this is probably Shekinah glory. This is the Lord. What would he be expecting the very next moment since he's been touching the apple of God's eye? Judgment. Judgment. Yeah, not grace. He's expecting to be wiped off the planet. And then he hears the words. He doesn't know who it is. But Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting right, me? You cannot kick against the goats. And so that's why, remember, it seems like Paul keeps coming back over and over to this idea. I'm the least of the apostles. Why? I persecuted the church. Therefore, I'm the chief of sinners. And so that becomes just this fuel. I think we gave the quote. Yeah, this is, I don't know if Alvin, if you heard any of this, but we quoted Alvin and Milton from uh, the, uh, the men's meeting in the morning. Paul was a lunatic apostle who was madly in love with Jesus because he was radicalized by grace. What a great thought that... Once he realized how gracious and loving Christ was to him to not only not wipe him out, save him, but then actually commission him to go out and do work, eternal, meaningful work for Christ. Paul's just blown away. Now, we did we did emphasize last week that all of our conversions are unique, right? It's not like everybody's going to have this see a light, hear Jesus voice. This obviously was the very beginning of the church. Remember, I don't know if you guys remember way back, as the church is created, it's very similar in its beginnings to the creation of the cosmos, right? God comes in to create the world, and he says, let there be light, and boom! There's just all kinds of like immediate activity at the beginning of creation. And then God just lets creation move, largely according to providence, in a very slow, methodical way from that point on. Same thing with the church. The church gets created, and you just see all this boom stuff happening through the Apostles, uh, Cornelius, the Pentecost 2.0, or 2.0, I'm sorry, Pentecost 2.0 in Acts 10. So there's this really, really, really amazing stuff that happens very quickly, and then it kind of kicks into gear. This very methodical forward, the gates of hell shall not prevail. The church is just marching forward through the Spirit. Throughout the ages, <clears throat> nothing can stop it. Um, that partially explains why we see so much like punctuated equilibrium, so to speak, this incredible fast growth at the beginning, and then the church is just marching on. It can't be stopped. It's like lava that's just, you see lava in Hawaii and places, it's just going forward. It seems very slow, it seems messy. It's like, what's happening? Why aren't we seeing? Paul conversions every day. Well, the Lord, the Spirit was kicking things off, and then now it's this lava that cannot be stopped, just moving through the centuries. It's a little seed that just grows, right? So Paul gets overwhelmed by love. Um, How can being reminded of testimonies like Paul's help us combat gospel amnesia? Because we all deal with gospel amnesia. Great. So Justice says, define gospel amnesia. It'd be the idea, and I just read this this week, so don't think I'm Mr. Smart Guy. That's why I threw it up there. I was like, ah, I like that. Um, so, gospel amnesia is the idea that we forget the good news of the gospel, the power of God unto salvation. So often, our hearts, you know, just like Calvin says, there are these idol factories, and our hearts get hard. Hebrews three thirteen. if we're not exhorting one another daily. Um, And so we can be overcome by the deceitfulness of sin. And so every day I'm having to overcome my gospel amnesia. I don't know about you, but like I've had some really neat things that happened this week. And then the very next day, it's almost like I've forgotten all the wonderful things the Lord did the day before. And I need to be reminded again. Does that make sense? We're just very forgetful people. That's why Peter has to say over and over again remember, 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 remember. You too? Man, I thought it was just me. Man, I guess it's Brian and I. I'm in the chair. You're in the chair. Not for long. Not for long. Not for long. You'll be with Jesus. That's right. Alright, so any any thoughts on that? Got testimonies helping us overcome gospel amnesia amnesia? Yeah, Steve. I just think it's the the I think we all realize how much we need to be in the word daily. Yes. So just daily being in the Word. Yeah, Dan? Yeah, and being uh, reminded in communion time, that mm. takes us back to, it should at least take us back to our own version of what God has done for us and how He's brought us, and that should
1: be a really good reminder. Yeah.
0: Totally. Yeah, Alvin. Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Now that's good. So Alvin's sharing just about how being reminded of our testimony, Paul's testimony helps us in our evangelism as we think about the hole from which we were dug, right? That gives us motivation. also breaks down those barriers, right? Paul, as a Hebrew, probably would, and Peter, they would have never wanted to hang out with Gentiles if the Lord didn't save them, give them that kind of testimony, right? And um, and then Dan's talking about how when we partake of communion, that's another way to remember our testimony and, and help us overcome that gospel amnesia. We're partaking, remember what Christ did for us, how he died and was raised from the dead. Yeah, that's that's really awesome. Um, I know my um it wasn't too awful long ago that my wife and I were in a, a setting um to where we both got to share our testimonies and it wasn't really we weren't sharing our testimonies particularly for the people we were gathered with. The the idea of us sharing our testimonies was more to get us to remember about where the Lord's brought us and um, and how He's worked in our lives and in our marriage. And as we just began to share our testimonies, suddenly we're like, that's right. Wow, look at all the Lord's done in our lives. And look how the Lord's brought us together as a married couple. And wow, isn't it neat what the Lord's done? And it began to uh, to kind of remind us and open our eyes that, yeah, God's got some really good things for us in the future. I don't know, you, you guys You, you guys have heard Milton preach from the pulpit. I mean, it shouldn't be any shock to you that as pastors, elders, we have times too where things get clogged, right? We're trying to work together with our children, our wives, our setting, and you, you get clogged up. You're like, man, I can't. Man, we can't talk through this issue. And you go back and all of a sudden you're reminded of what Christ did in your life. It's like, wow, that's right. I forgot about that. How did I forget about that? Um, so our testimonies can have an, an amazing impact. It's befuddling to me how how many times um, sometimes we'll tell the kids, our kids, our some of our story when they're younger and we just think that they'll always remember our story, right, of our salvation and how Katie and I came together. I'm talking to Anna the other day about, I, I went to pick up a we were coming home from Master's uh, University and I bought my wife a bottle of Pepsi. She doesn't drink Pepsi. Why am I buying her Pepsi? It was because of something in our dating relationship were early about Pepsi and Coke. We had this little silly thing. And so I, you know, I bought her some Pepsi and I told Anna that story. She had never heard that story. At least she doesn't remember. And so here's something that, to me, I thought, well, my kids know this. No, they don't. They don't always. They don't know the whole story of what the Lord's done in Katie and I and bringing us together, and so we have to remind them of that. Remind them of our own testimonies. Um, as our kids have gotten older, I, I used to have maybe it was I, perhaps it was appropriate when the kids were younger. I don't know, but I I was shy to share certain things with my kids because I'm like, I don't want them to get any ideas, right? <laughs> And do some of the things I did when I was younger. and um, But as the kids have gotten older, we've gotten more and more free and open with our testimony. And I actually think it's been very healthy. I think more healthy than when the kids were younger. For the kids to see, our kids, to see some of the struggles that we've been through. Um, I don't want to get off on too far of a tangent, but a few weeks ago, one of my children said to me dad i could never be like you and and i've said these things to them before but i i I just i was thinking about that for a couple weeks and then i said to that young person which will remain nameless you can you got a 33 percent chance um i said you know i would there's a part of me that would never want you to be like me because here's all the struggles and wickedness that i've struggled with and I named several of the things I've struggled with and I said on the other hand look at what Christ has done for me what kind of God does this there's no pagan deity that I know of I've never read of these false pagan deities that treats his people the way God treats us that's just we have such a when God says he's loving he, he's a, a God of compassion loving kindness just look at me so I wanted. to Even though I've said things like this to that child before, they forget, just like I forget, right? And so I wanted them to remember, I am not all that. This is who I am outside of Christ. Look to Christ. You, there's so many things. In fact, I really believe that my children can go way beyond where I'm at, you know, just because of their, how they've been impacted by the gospel at such a young age. I hadn't, right? I didn't come to the Lord much later, And um, so there's so many things, you know, that I think our children can pass us up in, you know, uh, Lord willing and by his grace. So anyway, so testimonies can really help us sharing our testimony. What I want to do is I want to go to another part of Paul's thought process that comes right out of his his testimony. And this is going to feel like an odd turn, but I want you to roll with me on this and i want you to open up to romans 9 and and i want to i want us to consider a thought here for a moment the way i want to set up this thought though is is that you don't have to turn here but let's just draw our attention back to abraham had been given a promise right way back in genesis we've been going through genesis Abraham was given a promise that he's going to have a child. There's going to be seed, great nation. There's going to be land. The Abrahamic promise. God makes this promise based upon his own name. It's what we call unilateral. It's not, I'll do this, you do that. No, God says, I swear by my own name, I'm going to do this for you. And then we find out as the story develops that Isaac is the seed, right? Isaac is going to be the one through whom the promise comes. Abraham believed God. It is accounted to him as righteousness in Genesis 15. But then there comes a day, as you guys know the story, where God tells Abraham, I want you to go and take your son, your only son that I've given you, and you're going to offer him up as a sacrifice. And to us, and this is intentional, the reader should stop and be like, What? What in the world is going on here? If God came to me and said, I want you to take your son, your only son. I've got two and either one of them and go off them up as a sacrifice. I would be like, no way, Jose. This just isn't going to happen. There's no way I can do this. But for some reason, Abraham, there's no indication in the Bible that he ever even questions this. Now, when you watch the Hollywood versions, I remember seeing a Hollywood version of this when I was younger and Abraham's oh, he's crying and he's upset and throwing things and all that. And you just don't get any impression of that in the Bible. He basically, he just believes God. He goes out with his son. He gets the wood and so on. Then he says to his servant before he goes up to Mount Moriah, you stay here and when we come back, right? And then when you fill it in with Hebrews, he knew that God could even raise him from the dead because God made a promise. And so I'm going to believe his promise. So Abraham goes up and you guys know the whole story is he lifts up the knife. The Lord says, no, don't do it. There is a ram over here. Back when my kids were memorizing some of their um, letters in an old Puritan letter book, you get to the letter I, Isaac was unbound when a ram was found. I, Isaac was unbound when a ram was found. Um, and so Abraham believes this promise. Once you start to realize how much God's promises are true and how God, when He binds Himself to His own name to do it, and then Abraham believes God, now it kind of makes sense, right? In a soundbite environment, that would never make sense. But when you really think it through according to God and His character, okay, I see why Abraham would do that. Does that make sense? Now, fast forward to to Paul, Romans nine three. Let's just read nine three because I when I've read this passage in the past, I don't look. I haven't looked at the context. I look at verse three and I'm like, what? Paul says, I could wish myself, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, or my relatives according to the flesh. And every time I come across that verse, I'm like. What? I could wish myself accursed? What does that mean? Anathema? From Christ? What's Paul saying? I could wish myself to go to hell, separated from Christ, if my brethren, according to the flesh, could be saved, right? My relatives. Every time I read that verse, I say, no way. No way. I mean, I love my family. I love my extended family. I, I think I, the Lord's given me some level of love for the world. But there's no way I'm going to give up my salvation and go to hell so that other people can be saved. That's just not going to happen. I don't know about you. Maybe you, guys, maybe you guys would line up for that. But there's no way I could comprehend that. And yet this is clearly in the text. Paul is saying, I, I, I could wish that I were anathema. And so this is one of those many passages that we have in the Bible. It's a hard saying that, you know, you read it, you struggle with it. What in the world does that mean? But I want to suggest to you that when we have reactions to scripture like this, it's intentional. When we read something like this, just like when we see God tell Abraham to take Isaac up and sacrifice him, and we say, what? That's intended by the Holy Spirit through the original author. We should be saying, what? And when we read this verse, we should be saying, what? Which should force us to go deeper into the text and look around the context and look through the rest of the writings of Paul and the character of God and try to figure out what's going on here. Because I don't know any place in the Bible that says that commands me to go to hell for the sake of others. Do you? I don't know any place that says, believers, you should be willing to suffer anathema for the sake of other people. Don't know any place that says that. So, but you think about the context. Remember, there's no chapter divisions in the original, right? Chapter divisions come later to help us be able to find out where we're supposed to open our Bibles. When Pastor Milton says, open up your Bible to Genesis 37, right? So what's right before this context? Look at 835. This is all within the same idea. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What's the answer to that question? Zip. Nothing. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Look at verse 37. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. I'm persuaded that neither death, life, angels, principalities, powers, things present to come, height, depth, nor any other created things shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Same thing we've been talking about with Paul. He was radicalized by God's grace and love. He, he understands this concept that Christ loves him so much, nothing. Nothing could separate him from the love of Christ. Then in that context, what comes? And, and would you say that when Paul writes this, is this a happy passage or a sad passage? This is happy. This is raise your hands. Hallelujah. Man, nothing can separate me. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But then, remember, there's no chapter division. Paul doesn't even skip a beat. And and then he says, I tell you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. That's a lot of, hey, Christ is involved. The Holy Spirit's involved. My conscience, what I'm about ready to tell you, this is totally true. That I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. How can Paul go from nobody can separate us to I am in the depths of despair continually? How can he do that? I want to suggest to you that I think why he can do that is because the love of Christ is so he's he's really under, beginning. Or I wouldn't say beginning, but he as an apostle is laying out for us the love of Christ for us. And it's deep in his heart. It's really deep in his heart and as he considers what a blessing that is to him personally and to everybody else that knows Christ, when he then turns and considers those that are his own relatives that are outside of Christ, he grieves and he's sad. So the love of Christ brings simultaneously this great joy that he can't be separated, nothing can separate him, and simultaneously this great grief. Parents know exactly what I'm talking about. Right. And many of you have been through this kind of stuff. I have so much joy about what Christ is doing in my own heart. And when I hear my children utter just a little tiny bit of faith, so much joy fills my heart. And yet when I watch or hear my children express even the slightest doubt about God's love and in Christ, it's just like my heart is I get pained. Right. And it seems like what Paul is describing is that the more he comes into the love of Christ, the greater is joy in one respect, but also the greater is grief in, an, in another respect because he really understands what's what this means. There's a sadness, there's a grief. And then he comes into verse 3, for I could wish, there's a subjunctive idea here, we'll explain that in a second, that I myself were anathema from Christ from my for my brethren my and my countrymen my relatives according to the flesh i could wish this although i know it is not possible because he's just said nothing can separate me right nothing can separate me i have such grief for them i could wish this why would he even in a subjective sense wish that why would he even wish i I don't find myself ever wishing that. Why would Paul wish that? I think I think the clue is is that he as we come into a deeper and deeper love of Christ and how that he has become a curse for us, then we begin to identify with his heart for the unsaved, for people that are separated. Particularly, we'll talk about this later, the elect, right? The his family, his kids. Think about this. <clears throat> Jesus Christ was a curse, right? This a, a sister book to Romans. So I want you to track with me. Is everybody tracking or am I leaving you guys behind? So so Galatians um is it 3? Do you guys remember where he becomes a curse? Uh Yeah, Galatians 3:13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become what? a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So remember Jesus went to the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He became a curse for us. And so in eternity passed at some point. We don't know. It's hard to us to comprehend the eternity when there's timelessness. But we do know that the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they all contract together that somebody is going to go and be a curse for um, the elect, for those that are going to come into Christ. And Jesus in eternity says, I'll do that. I'm going to go and I will be anathema. I will be accursed for these ones, these loved ones, that the Father is giving to the Son, that he may grant eternal life to as many as come to him. Right? So he decides, I'm going to go and I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a curse for them. And when you go back, we won't take time to do this, but I mean, we'll just look at one verse. If you look at the the previous context in chapter eight, it's full of curse, anti-curse type of terminology. Um, Eight verse one. Therefore, there is no what condemnation to those who are in Christ. That's the idea of curse. Verse three, for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did in sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, not on account of uh, on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Who condemned sin in the flesh? The father condemned sin that was in the son. The flesh here refers to the son. So the son was condemned. Anathema. You guys getting this? I, I've never gotten this until two days ago i don't know it's it's all this verse has always bothered me but so if it's true that jesus became a curse for us and then his love is so big as we see in chapter eight nothing can separate us from the love of christ and that whole context let's go back and let's do review this look at chapter eight verse twenty eight For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified. What then shall we say against these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can curse us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all to a curse. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a what? A charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who can bring a charge against God's own people? Even if they haven't come into the fold yet, who can bring a charge against them? Nobody. Nobody can bring a charge against them. Nobody can condemn them. But Jesus Christ was a curse for them. Paul's understanding that that love that God has for him, he was on the way to kill Christians, right? On the way to kill Christians to Damascus. Jesus knocks them down and says, no, you don't. You're mine. You're now going to go preach for me. And that carries Paul the rest of his life. I was, I should have been wiped out. I was going to kill Christians. I was like Jonah, running the opposite way god swallows me up spits me out on the on the sands of what is it nineveh and then so this curse becomes a blessing i could wish myself accursed for my brethren according to the flesh these jews who were given all of these promises and yet so many of them are rejecting these promises let's summarize it this way. So based on that, Paul makes this radical statement as an apostle that I still don't think I could make. Right. Um, But I, at least I understand what leads them to make a statement like that. He knows he can't really be condemned just like Isaac could never really die. And so, but his heart is churning with Christ, right? He's sad. He wants to see people come to know the Lord, but what can be done I think what flows, turn to Romans 12 out of this. Remember, this is all in the same context. He spends all this time now talking about Israel for three chapters, right? Talking about Israel and how that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Not all Israel is Israel and all that kind of stuff. you got the got the, the olive tree being grafted in. I don't know if you guys remember all that context. The provoking of the Gentiles and so on and so forth. Then you get to chapter 12, verse 1. This is the same context, you guys. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you what present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable God, which is your reasonable service, or kind of the idea is probably your spiritual or metaphorical service, meaning not literally sacrifice yourselves, but spiritually sacrifice yourselves on what basis is Paul calling the Romans to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice? The same basis that he's saying, I could wish myself accursed. It's like, well, if you can't wish yourself accursed, let's talk about some less, lesser things that we can do. We can lay our bodies out there and say, I'm going to just give up my body for Christ and his body. And his body. I'm going to be willing to suffer for his sake. I'm going to be willing to go through some sufferings in order that I might all means win some. And when you look at Paul, it's like, he's willing to endure all this stuff for the sake of the elect. First Peter, was it First Peter 3? Because I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Why? Because so look at what Christ did for me. He was accursed for me. I should have been wiped out there on the road to Damascus. But what do I get? I get grace. And now he gets... Now, here's we need we need to be careful. It's not, Paul's not telling us, now you need to feel really guilty, pull yourself up and work super hard, right? So that you can now give your bodies as a sacrifice for other people. If we say that, we've completely lost the point. If we walk out of here feeling guilty that I'm not giving up enough and I'm not sacrificial enough for Jesus, and now I'm feeling I got to go out and be a Marine, you know? Have you guys seen that billboard? Marines fight to win. I like that. Marines fight to win. Paul's like, Christians fight to win. Right? Because it's already been won. Um, So anyway, so the whole motivation is, Jesus loves us. The bottom line is, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. If nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, then what's the worst that can happen? You can't be accursed. So what's the absolute worst that could happen? We could die and go see Jesus. That's the worst. That's the absolute worst that can happen. That's So that's why Paul can say, and then we'll come, I, we got a question, but that's why Paul can say in Romans eight eighteen, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Why can he say sufferings are okay to me? When I read suffering passages, I don't like that. I don't know about you, but I, I, I see Paul talking about suffering as if it's not that big deal. And I'm like, Paul, it's a big deal. How can you say this? But if Paul's comparing damnation to suffering, is it a big deal? If he's comparing, suffering to the love of Christ and we can't be separated from that. Is it that big of a deal? No, so Paul's he's helping us overcome our gospel amnesia by saying, "Yeah, I'll suffer if it's going to help people get saved and if that suffering ends up with me going to see Jesus early." Hey man, I win. Right? I think uh Brooke had something That is amazing. Yeah, we're kind of on a wavelength here. That's like right now. That's my life verse. Um, At least it's been like the last year and a half. So the verse that Brooke is talking about is 2 Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ compels us or constrains us because we judge that if one died for all, then all died. And if he died for all, then those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So this is such a key verse for me, and I, it's a key verse for all of us. So should I? what's Paul saying? You need to go live your life for other people because you're a really selfish person. And if you don't live your life for other people, then you're really super selfish. You need to go share the gospel. Otherwise, you're a selfish person. Don't you realize these people need Christ and you're sitting here playing, watching football or baseball or whatever. You, you should feel really terrible about yourself and go out there and share the gospel. Is that what Paul's saying? Is that how he wants us to be motivated? If you read Paul, you realize that will not motivate us at all. That's, that's basically be trying to be motivated by law, which does not last. What lasts is exactly what Brooke was saying. It's the love of Christ when you say love of, it's not my love for Christ, it's Christ's love for me that compels us and then leads to the result no longer living for themselves but for him who died for them. I'm fifty years old and I, I, I feel like I'm almost getting this. I'm starting to get this idea that if if by the Holy Spirit, by his grace, which The word of God comes into my heart that provides the fuel. Then the Holy Spirit ignites it. Now it's like, oh, I'm starting to understand Christ's love for me. That that, those songs I sang in Sunday school that I thought I understood. Yes, Jesus loves me. I'm starting to really understand and believe that. Wow. And then when we really understand and believe that, all of a sudden now... That's what when Paul starts talking about the Holy Spirit. The, he's pouring the love of Christ. The Holy Spirit's pouring the love of Christ into hearts. And now we find ourselves wanting to tell people about Jesus, not because we're guilty or we're feeling condemned, but because we, we're we just so overwhelmed by Christ's love for us. Does that make sense? I love that Brooke shared that. So, that yeah, that's what the Lord's been doing in my heart lately, is just really trying to help me see how much He loves me it, just like Paul, it's like we deserve one thing and we get another. And then we're like, what? I'm the chief of sinners and he treats me like this? Wow. Now that becomes the power of God and, you know, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That gives me power to want to go out. And really corporately, the evangelism is a team sport, right? It's not an individual sport. We're not just playing tennis. It doesn't all depend upon you to get the gospel out there. It's us, right? Gospel is a team sport. We go out as a group and we, because we're filled up with the love of Christ, we let the, what are those little things you blow? The uh, dandelions, right? You blow the dandelions, the seed of the gospel floats around and guess what happened? In my yard right now, it's just full of dandelions. How did those things get there? They just show up and then boom, they start coming up. That's the spirit's job. We can't produce that, right? I, we can throw the dandelions out there of the gospel, but we can't convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We can't cause anybody to be born again, right? John 3, Nicodemus. We just go out, we get filled up with the love, let the dandelions go, the spirit does his work. Sounds simple, right? It really is. Really, if we understand it, it's get filled up with the love of Christ. And even then, you can't get filled up with the love of Christ. You cry out to the Lord and you say, Lord, help me get filled up with the love of Christ. And guess what? Is that a prayer that the Lord wants to answer? When I say, Lord, I want to I understand your love for me more. Do you think God wants to answer a prayer like that? I, I think he does. Don't you think so? I think he does. Let me kind of wrap this up with this. And then we'll maybe op- open up some more questions. I don't, does this help you guys? this i don't know this helps me a ton to understand one that romans 9 passage what's motivating paul the fact that christ is condemned for us that frees us up to other types of movements that are all motivated by love not by guilt so here's here's one of the things i've been praying lately a guy in my care group, Dave Contreras, he and his wife, they have this thing where they 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 have five kids, and they over a 25-year period, they pray for each one of their kids on a different day a week. Not that they can't pray other times, but Dave and Norma, they'll pray for one of their children on Monday, big, and then they get together, and they pray together for another child on Tuesday. And they've been doing that for 25 years. I'm like, whoa, I love that. <clears throat> and so I started putting that into practice. And... um and so, so anyway, I've, but I've, I've been, as each day comes up, there's also certain things I'm praying for myself first, right? Cause we want to give attention to ourselves and then to the doctrines that we might save ourselves and those who hear us, right? You can't help anybody else. If you're not drinking, if you're not breathing the oxygen of the gospel first. <clears throat> so here's what I've been praying for myself. You could make your own list. But I, one of my first daily prayer requests right now is, I want to know Christ's love for me, and to love Him more and more. That's just I'm praying that every day. I want to know His love for me, just like it says in is it Ephesians one, and and I want to love Him more and more. Now, here's the thing: Does God want to answer that prayer? There's no doubt that He wants to answer that prayer, and so if I will just cry out to Him. Humbly, as the Bible says, humble myself before the Lord. He wants to answer that prayer, and so. I, but I, I need to. He does want us to come. One of the things we learn about God and the nature of prayer is He just wants us to ask. Lord, help me understand in a deeper way. And so I ask Him for that, and then the way I try to put that into practice is I got to get God's word in my heart. It seems very simple. I learned this when I was brand new Christian, fourteen. But put God's word in my heart. And now I've got fuel for the Holy Spirit to start to ignite, right? I don't always feel, and I don't get the EBGBs every morning when I have my quiet time. I don't know about you. Do you guys? Does every time you read the Bible, does everybody kind of have this magical seventh heaven experience? I don't. I read the Bible by faith, just like I had this morning. I had, and I didn't have breakfast this morning. Yesterday, I had some breakfast. I didn't get any EBGBs when I had my toast and peanut butter. But I put it into my body and my body knows what to do with that. It's really weird. My body sends these elements throughout my body and then it starts doing things for me that helps me even though I'm totally unconscious of what the food is doing for my body. I just put it in and then my body sends it places. Isn't that weird? And so it's like, it's I think it's a very similar, just as newborn babes deny, desire the the word, we put it in, we read it we don't always have this high emotional experience, but we put it in. We need it every day, and then the Holy Spirit starts to move it around. We're not always completely conscious of everything that's going on, but then you you're moving through your day, and you're you're trying to meditate on it, you know. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit's like reminding you of things. Right? It's not like this ultra mystical experience, although this the Word of God is living, right? So you put the word of God in your heart and then the Holy Spirit starts to use the written word of God in your heart throughout the day. And as you do that day after day after day, especially as you get older, like some of us, you start getting older and then that starts to compile. And then it's just kind of like the Holy Spirit's taking all that stuff that you've been doing since you were 14 and starts to have residual benefit on you. As the Holy Spirit can can awaken your heart to these various passages of scriptures, you guys know a lot. Of, you guys know what I'm talking. You guys have experienced that. You're in the shower. You're not even thinking of a certain passage. All of a sudden, Luke 15, the lost coin, that came to me, I'm like, "Whoa, that would really help so and so." I love that. Oh, I'm going to text that to this person. That helps me. That will help them. Um, so that's one of the things I'm praying. I got eight minutes. The second thing I'm praying is I want to love the people around me the way he loves me, starting with my wife and family. I, I don't think I really I, if you had asked me 25 years ago, read that to me and say, do you understand that? And I'd say, totally, I understand that. No, we, we all we only know a little bit, <clears throat> but it's like if I can get overwhelmed with the love of Christ for me. Now that can spill over in my love for other people, right? It can spill over and help me love my wife, can help me love my kids. Here's something just for me that the Lord's been doing lately, is I've been understanding how how gracious and loving kind the Lord is for me. You know, you see exceptions all over the Old Testament where God tells people to do this and that, and then they say, "Well, there's the circumstance." He's like, "Okay." do it a little differently like Hezekiah with uh, Passover all of a sudden they celebrate the Passover on the second month rather than the first there's like, all kinds of places all over the Bible where as soon as somebody cries out the Lord's there to listen when my child comes up to me my smaller child which will remain nameless comes up and says dad I can't find my uh, pocket knife can you help me find it a lot of times my default setting is no, you lost it. Go find it. That's just my default setting. And Katie and I were joking around last week. It's like, I mean, my my nickname, although I'm getting better, could be Doctor No. It's like, hey, can we do it? No. We'd like to get some French fries, Del Taco. No. You know, now there's, you know, you got to be careful. You don't want to spoil your kids. Although. I got to admit, I think the Lord spoils me. He just, it's weird. Sorry. It's so clear that there's things I don't deserve that he gives us. Sorry. So anyway, it's the love of Christ that compels us. Something I'm praying for. I've noticed that as I'm understanding Christ's love for me more, as the Holy Spirit's helped me get a deeper level of his love for me, that's spilling over into my other relationships. It's not that I'm not violating and sinning against people. I am, but I'm more quickly noticing it now and going back and apologizing. I know. Um, Katie and I recently, you know, we were just talking about how <clears throat> there's so many times where I w- I've um, would sin against a person. I'll you know, just you know pick family members for a second, and they just have no clue of what I did. I didn't even see it. That's that's human nature. But then when I'd be confronted with it, I'd be like, "No, I didn't do that. You've got the wrong perspective." And what's going on there? It's like there's pride, inability to see. I think I have this incredible perceptive ability, which I don't. But then when the love of Christ begins to overwhelm us, there's things can start happening through the Holy Spirit because of his word, where you're like, oh, you, oh man. One, I maybe the Lord helps you catch it when you do it, and then you can go back and apologize early. That's better, right? We're all going to sin against each other every day. But then when you get confronted, it's like I I feel my inner Barney Fife come in. It's like I'm immediately wanting to defend myself. But when the love of Christ is overwhelming me and I realize I don't have to defend myself, Christ has already been a curse for me. Now I can be like, okay. Well, the Bible does tell me that I don't perceive everything properly. There's a way that seems right to man, but that way leads to death. Maybe you've got the right perspective. I need to humble myself. I know God's going to meet me down here. Does that make sense? But this kind of stuff, we, we can ask the Lord for this. I don't. None of us has this naturally. We just say, Lord, help me. Help me love you. Help me love people. So on and so forth. And then the last thing, there's other things on here, but this is the last one I'll read. I want to preach the gospel more regularly, passionately, and clearly and boldly. I'm praying that every day. You know, why am I doing that? Why am I praying for that? I'm not praying for that, that God will overwhelm me with a sense of guilt. I'm praying it because the Lord is deepening my heart or deepening my sense of his love for me. And so he's increasing my love and getting me to look up more and so I'm praying God to open my mouth. And I'm a pastor, right? So it's my job description, right? I'm supposed to be preaching the gospel. Um so so what I see the Lord doing in my life that I I just absolutely believe the Lord will do in your life all of us at different times is as as I'm learning more about Christ's love, I find myself loving my family more. Does that make sense? Um, So he loves me and I'm drinking that. And so I find myself loving my family more. I'm not sinning against them. I don't think any less. Maybe I am. Ask my wife. I think I'm still sinning against my family every day, but I'm loving them and confessing more. And then as I'm loving my family and my wife more, I'm looking up and now all of a sudden I'm loving the church more. That's the third residual benefit that's been a little unexpected is I think you guys, I mean, any one of us, if you asked me again, like just two, three, four or five years ago, do you love the church? I'd say, yes, I love the church. But for me, I've always loved Christ. I've always had a passion for his glory. I've always had a passion to defend the church and I love the church corporately. But as like Paul describes as The Holy Spirit has helped me understand His love for me more. There's times where now I'm I'm looking up when I'm leading worship on a Sunday. Is this okay? Am I making you guys uncomfortable? I feel like I'm making you guys uncomfortable. I look up sometimes on a Sunday and I see all these stories in our congregation of people and your testimonies, and I'm looking up and I'm and it's just like and I'm thinking about God's love for His church. I'm like, I don't want to. It's almost like the Lord is saying. I love these people. I love. The Lord loves these people. That's right. <clears throat> and so as, as I mean, all of us are called to this, but as a pastor and as a, as a shepherd, it's like love these people. Right. <clears throat> love these people and that's that's i think paul's heart here why did why did you know i think we're i'm just getting a sliver of what the apostle paul was tasting in his life but that's i think the if i understand the bible correctly that's what the lord's trying to do in my heart that's the path to sanctification and and discipleship starts with love and i i don't know i can only i will pray right here in a second I'm a very limited type of guy. Like when I get up and put my things to list together in the morning, a lot of times I I write it all out. And like you, I've got 10, 15, 20 things that I've got to do that day. And sometimes I'll just get overwhelmed and I'll be like, I'm never going to get this done. I can't do this. I don't have the capacity to do it. But if at the top of my list, I can just say, drink in the love of Christ for you. If I can just do one thing today and just sit long at the feet of Christ, you know, one thing have I desired, that will I seek after that may dwell in the house of the Lord to behold his beauty. If I don't do anything, especially as a pastor, um, but just sit at the feet of Jesus and just look at his beauty, then that's, that's what I need. Just do that one thing. Understand his love for me. And what I'm noticing is if if by God's grace, I'm able to really behold the beauty of Christ on a daily basis, the other dominoes start to fall. So yeah, my big, huge things to do list that just makes me want to get back into bed sometimes. If I do the one thing that drink deeply of Christ's love for me, now I get out of that, I come up from that, and I'm like, I've got this energy to go out and do things that are like, where is this coming from? Where's this energy coming from? Uh, just like Paul says, it's, I work harder than them all, but it's not I. What? The grace of God in me. It's the grace of God in me. Well, let's pray. If anybody has any questions, we'll come back. Um, I love Cornelius, but Cornelius is going to have to wait to another day. So Acts 10 next week, we'll talk about Cornelius. Um, And then um, we'll roll from there. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much. The wisdom uh, that you have in giving us statements in your word, like what we've just read about, that Paul would, have the gumption to say I could wish myself accursed." for my brethren. Lord, we pray that you would help each of us to just be um, to drink deeply of your love, that your spirit would pour the love of Christ into our hearts and help us have a deeper sense of your love for us. And that you would more and more work in us a desire to see our family members, our countrymen, people around the world saved. Um, That we would open up our mouth for the gospel, not because we're motivated out of some um, alternative sense of guilt, but that we would be just so overwhelmed with your love for us. They would help us play this team sport called making disciples. We know that every one of us has different um, gifts in the body. Some of us are going to be speaking a lot, some of us serving a lot, some of us praying a lot. Um, So we all have a role to play, uh, but help us to find our role in the making of disciples um, that you would get all of the glory and that your love would be spread. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.